Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update COVID-19 Special Edition, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Cara. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I will be your moderator today. We have some interactive features we're going to be looking at today. You've got your questions and comments. You can send them in to us as they occur to you through the Q&A box. You can download the deck by using the URL on your screen. It's going to be sent out in the chat box. And we've also got a special COVID-19 resources list that Dr. John Halamka is going to tell you more about. And you've got the URL to go ahead and get a hold of that resource list. So you see how we are going to spend our time today. First, we're going to go approximately 30 minutes. We're going to hear the featured presentation from Dr. John Holomka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform. Then we're going to have a brief interview with Dr. Graham Hughes, president and COO with Sekara, our sponsor today. And then we're going to have our audience Q&A. We're going to make sure we get to as many of your questions as we possibly can. So without further delay, I'm going to turn it over to our good friend, Dr. John Holomka. Dr. Holomka, thanks for making time today. I know you are a busy man these days. Well, thanks so much, Anthony. And I guess I would want to start by saying, you know, folks, what an amazing time we're all living through as we are connecting to this webinar through our home offices as we are practicing social distancing. You know, Graham is a physician. I am a physician. I think we should start by saying, folks, watch your sleep patterns. Watch if you're sleeping a lot more, sleeping a lot less. Look at your caffeine consumption, a lot more, a lot less. Your alcohol consumption, a lot more, a lot less. I mention these things because these are all hallmarks of anxiety and depression. And as we are going to probably be socially isolated for the next 16 weeks, that is likely to be more and more common. So just recognize all of us are feeling these, these feelings. All of us are struggling but by keeping ourselves together in webinars like this, Anthony, where we communicate, share ideas, and collaborate, we'll get through this. So let's start on some of the policy changes. Uh, it has been a remarkable three weeks as we look at the movement of medicine from bricks and mortar to a more digital delivery environment. And today we'll talk about telemedicine, remote patient monitor, virtual hospital, but we'll also reflect on the ONC and CMS final rules. So why don't we go ahead to the next slide. And so one of the things that of course we have to think about is what is the role of HIPAA? So, uh, you know, Graham, I'm sure as a practicing physician, you've heard, oh, you know, you can't text a patient, that's a HIPAA violation. Well, the reality is, of course you can text a patient as long as the patient agrees that using a free text unencrypted message is okay with them. Well, that's interesting. I mean, so we've always had the ability to use novel communication methods if we got patient consent and there was complete education and understanding. But in a world of COVID, where we're moving all of our visits virtually and we're using a variety of platforms, some of which may have BAAs, some of which don't. Some devices might be encrypted and some may not. There, there are risks, of course, of doing this. And so what we have is guide from the guidance from Office of Civil Rights 
that says that during this crisis, we are going to have a waiver of HIPAA penalties and sanctions. So this idea is if we are doing all our best to deliver remote care, and uh, along the way, we happen to be using a platform or device that isn't traditionally you know, covered by the HIPAA privacy and security rule protections, there won't be penalties or sanctions should there be a problem. So you can see some of the specific waivers that have been identified, the requirements to obtain a patient agreement to speak with family members or friends. I mean, how many of you are now trying to be the care traffic controllers for your household? right? It's going to require a team of families working together, so there has to be really a waiver of that. Or opting out of a facility directory uh, that, you know, we need to coordinate medical record exchange. We need to be able to figure out where you've been. We might even, over the course of the next couple of weeks, have contract contact tracking apps so that you can be notified if when you were in a facility, there was somebody also in the facility who potentially could have infected you. So it's important that that's waived. Uh, the requirement to distribute notice of privacy practices in a telehealth world where you are providing care in novel delivery mechanisms, but also novel providers you might not have met before coming together to help you may be hard to distribute privacy practices. Patients' right to request privacy restrictions and, and segmentation of their record is going to be waived for the interim. And then confidential communications specifically saying, you know, no, I won't use an unencrypted channel. No, you can't text me. So I tell you all this, obviously all of us are patient centric and privacy is a great focus, but these are simply sanctions that will be waived as we all understand we need flexibility and deliver care in a digital fashion and do so in such a rapid way that none of us could have even planned for. Along the way, obviously, we're all gonna do everything to keep the patient data secure and private, but it certainly is beneficial that OCR gives us flexibility during the transition. So let's go to the next slide. So let's talk about telemedicine. And so what we recognize is Telemedicine and telehealth means a whole lot of things, right? I do 900 telehealth visits personally each year as the nation's expert in poisonous mushrooms and plants. And I tell you that because how did I have to do that? Imagine I'm licensed in Massachusetts and Minnesota. A patient in North Dakota has a poisoning. Do they contact me directly? Oh, oh, they can't because I'm not licensed to practice medicine in North Dakota. So what they do is they contact a physician in North Dakota with a license who then contacts me and I provide that physician with advice and my treatment plan is delivered by the licensed physician in that state with their discretion. That's how it had to work in the past because medical licensure was at a state level. Although things like DEA and you know, opioid prescribing rights you know, may very well be a federal number that the individual licensure and practice scope was set by states. So what we have now seen is there are waivers that get around the state requirement to have local licensure in the delivery of telehealth care. So I show you this slide for two reasons. One, what we have are a series of CPT and HixPix codes so that various types of telehealth visits and remote care 
whether that's a new visit, a repeat visit, a check-in visit, or remote patient monitoring, all of these things are now billable. There are ways to process all these transactions, and there is the waiver of the state-level medical licensure. So in effect, licensed clinicians who are appropriately credentialed and qualified can deliver care in 50 states and charge for that care. So obviously, this has been percolating for years <laughs> and not making a lot of progress. And the fact that we've now been able in a matter of days to implement these relaxations of the telehealth delivery restrictions is extraordinary. And you know, Anthony, what I tell you is the changes that we make during this COVID era are likely to stick post-COVID mm -hmm. era. So I think it's important that all of us, you know, work through these logistics, figure out how we're gonna do record keeping and continuity of care and revenue cycle. Now, this all being said, the one thing that I have to be a little careful of is it's so early in the game, I haven't seen actual revenue cycle reports that show what reimbursement levels for these HICS-PICS and CPT codes actually are in practice, or what are the private insurance companies per state doing. And let me mention this. So in the state of Massachusetts, Governor Baker has ordered all private insurers to reimburse telehealth visits. So in Massachusetts, even the private insurance companies are affected by these kinds of thoughts. But I imagine in each state, your experience will vary. And the concern you have as we move to so much digital and virtual care delivery, if reimbursement levels are lower than a traditional office visit, we are going to see significant financial strain on many of our healthcare institutions. So this is one to be watched. Uh, obviously, many organizations, private sector and public sector, working to encourage telehealth. It's good for the patient. It's good for the healthcare delivery system because we don't bring infected patients into the proximity of caregivers because if caregivers themselves get sick and have to be quarantined, that adds another level of complexity. So that's telehealth, but let's talk about other kinds of remote care delivery. So let's go to the next slide. And this gets into you know, a little bit of policy weeds, but here's the issue. I think we agree that an ambulatory visit can be done through a standard telehealth application. Many companies have been doing that for a while. What do you do if a hospital is utterly overwhelmed and cannot deliver care to all the COVID patients, the ventilators that are needed, the intensive care needed? Well, certainly one thought is decant hospitals in this country of all non-COVID patients. Congestive heart failure, COPD, UTI. I mean, these are conditions that can be treated in a not traditional setting. And that's fine. So when we think about the tech, oh, we're going to do telemetry. So that's pulse, blood pressure, urine output, glucometers, uh, maybe uh, such things as pulse ox, sleep patterns, all kinds of telemetry. It's going to be supply chain coordination to the home. It's going to be getting the right services, home nursing, EMTs, paramedics. It's going to be bringing in specialists and virtual visits. All of these things are doable from a technology standpoint, but these are the regulatory issues. Imagine that a hospital is gonna get $20,000 
for an inpatient congestive heart failure patient DRG. And then they say, oh my God, we need to decant the hospital to free up the room for COVID patients. We're gonna send them to a home hospital setting where there's no DRG and there cannot be laboratory testing, radiology testing, third party services provided. Suddenly the revenue cycle collapses. And I can tell you what the numbers look like. People are at the moment gonna lose about $7,000 per patient, they transfer out of a bricks and mortar facility into a virtual hospital or home facility. So what do we need to do to make decanting patients in this country possible? One, we need a DRG that enables an acute care hospital to transfer a patient to a another setting of care without reducing the reimbursement. And so DRG recognition coming. There's this two midnight rule idea of you know what qualifies an inpatient stay. Oh, it's you've had two midnights in a bricks and mortar facility. Well, again, we would rather them not even come to the bricks and mortar facility. So the two midnight rule is certainly not something that you want in place. Where can nurses practice? What if we take a nurse from a bricks and mortar setting and move that nurse into a home setting? Is that allowable? What are the licensure issues or the scope of practice issues? What if we wanted to provide ancillary services like lab and rad in the home or take a patient from the home to a local radiology center, get the test done, return them to the home? Whole variety of stark anti-kickback issues and we need to make sure we relax those. And you know, what is the cost to the patient of these services? And so I tell you all these things because everything that you see in front of you on this slide has been presented to the White House, has been presented to HHS and CMS. And my hope, and Anthony, I wanna be really careful not to overpromise anything to the people on this webinar, is that by the end of this week, we will have a DRG for virtual hospital care, whether that's delivering care in a home or the Jacob Javits Convention Center, right? That is, there may be yeah. these large hotels, convention centers that are put together to deliver alternative kinds of care. And these issues that I've described on this slide, it conceivably by the end of this week may have some resolution. I mean, we've seen HHS offer subregulatory guidance on telemedicine very quickly. A lot of smart people in CMS are considering these issues now, and hopefully we'll get adjudication soon. So uh, those are some of your, your COVID-related policies. I do wanna highlight, Anthony, that you do have a spreadsheet that is uh, being made available as part of this webinar that was prepared by McDermott, Will, and Emery, Karen Sealander, and it has the up to the minute regulatory changes related to COVID. It includes legislation, regulation, and sub-regulatory guidance all in one spreadsheet. And so, you know, it certainly has a number of the things that I've described today about HIPAA and telemedicine. And that is something that I would encourage all of you to take a look at. It is extraordinarily comprehensive and should answer any of your questions. Uh, it was updated this morning. Well, let's move on now to the ONC and CMS final rules, because I know we wanted to talk about those. And so 
Um, we know that we have the final rules in place that were issued, they were supposed to be the first day of hymns, but they were, because hymns was canceled, released on that Monday of the first day of hymns by CMS and ONC as final rules with a set of implementation timeframes in 2020 and 2021. Let's review for a moment what those rules say, and I only included these slides because in my conversations with leaders at ONC and CMS, although there is seeming pressure to uh, rethink the deadlines for these rules, at the moment, I have not seen any specific action taken to, to uh, extend those deadlines. So it does mean that these very well may apply to us in the deadlines that have been stated. And why would that be? Well, you can see some of the reasons for the rules to begin with are so that patients can more easily access their medical records. They can exchange them as they wish. They can reduce their cost of care. Well, think about it in a COVID virtual world, it's gonna actually be more important than ever that you can be the steward of your own healthcare data and go to a provider you may not have met before and exchange your medical record and be able to get to that right provider for the right service at the right time at the right cost. So I think the notion is, boy, these APIs and these requirements on transparency and the ability to get that information without blocking are actually more important than ever. And that of course includes responsibilities for doctors' offices and hospitals to not make paper charts available or PDFs, but in fact, via fire APIs, ensure that any app that is appropriately functional and standards adherent at patient request with appropriate authentication and authorization can download a standard electronic form of that patient's what we call USCDI or the core data set for interoperability. And of course, this also has implications for the EHR vendors. They all on each of their EHR products will have to make standard APIs with this USCDI and the so-called Fire R4 implementation guide available. It will reduce burden on them because it makes it clear that one standard, one implementation guide, one constrained set of data has to be made available. Now, Anthony, this is interesting. There was a huge material change in this final rule that people may not have noticed, but the original rule said your whole medical record. Well, what's your whole medical record? Your toenail length, your hair color, right? I don't know, right? So this rule has now been constrained to say these APIs apply to the USCDI, the core set for, for data interoperability, which includes problems and meds and allergies and labs and RADs and care team and care plan, but doesn't include the million other things that potentially could have been in a medical record that have no standards associated with them. I was always worried about the burden on developers, but also the burden on apps and the challenge of just trying to do this plumbing with a lot of data that has absolutely no standard or format. So using USCDI as part of the final rule was very reasonable. And obviously the whole notion here is we're gonna have increased innovation. Every day I'm getting new apps to evaluate for COVID and they are really interesting like tracking where you've been and figuring out if others who have been infected have been in a place where you've been all while maintaining privacy. 
And so these kinds of innovations are all going to be possible with this final rule and more APIs. But let's drill down a little bit on some of the final rule criteria. Go to the next slide. So remember, there were two rules, the ONC rule on information blocking and the CMS rule on interoperability. And so what you see is 21st Century Cures, which inspired these two rules, has now made ONC look at different ways in which they will certify products. First, there has to be a, a there's an information blocking rule. We'll go through the details of what information blocking is, but basically your product cannot block the flow of information for care coordination or the delivery of patient records to the patients. There has to be a standard application program interface. There has to be some usability. There has to have been you know, appropriate testing to make sure that the burden of being able to exchange medical records securely with these apps isn't so hard or expensive. And there are restrictions on the amount of fees that can be charged for this interoperability provider to provider and patients. Well, next slide. So all that's handled as part of certification of the product and of course, attestation of its use. So let's just talk about what these APIs are. So remember that an API is just a mechanism by which data is in a standard format queryable through a uh, query response type of transaction. I say, I want Anthony's record. Here are the security constraints around that. And then I get back in a standard way, the problems, the meds, the allergies, and the like. And as I said previously, this is all the United States core data for interoperability or USCDI standard. And that the ONC will ensure the certification has the implementation guidance so that we are clear that every EHR product will have a standard API that is certified that can be consumed by any app or any service that has appropriate authentication and authorization that comes knocking. So this is an exciting move forward for interoperability. The EHR vendors have already created much of this technology. Some of the challenge will be workflow, admittedly, figuring out what apps are able to access this or what if, you know, and Anthony, I pose this as a hypothetical. What if two guys in a garage in Shenzhen create an app and that app happens to take your data and without your knowledge, share it on Facebook? You know, what do we do about that? Right, right, right. <laughs> right, and so uh, there's going to be, you know, certification, there's going to be review, but as we actually implement this stuff in actual workflows, we'll probably have to have some levels of curation and approval. And I think the good news is you're gonna see in the next slide, information blocking does in the final rule give us a set of exceptions that would enable us to say, actually, we're not going to send data to that uh, app developed by the two guys in the garage in Shenzhen. So in fact, let's go to the next slide. Okay, and so when we look at some of the uh, information blocking and exclusions, remember, so information blocking is this idea where it is a volitional, this is not because of incompetence or this is not because of, you know, lack of technical capacity. It's, a, it's really, it's a volitional where a party in the ecosystem is interfering 
to discourage access exchange or use of electronic information. And so I you know, think that this notion of information blocking sometimes has been more um, political and psychological than technical, <laughs> right? I don't like your organization, therefore I am not going to allow you to access data. So this notion of sort of volitional behavior to prevent the exchange of information is now prohibited and there are fines. But there are exceptions and let's drill down on those exceptions because they're actually pretty reasonable and you really need to have exceptions if you're gonna roll this out. So let's go to that next slide. And so let's just give some examples of a, a kind of exception. So well, what if, and you know, Anthony, I'm gonna make this up completely, but what if um, I am going to share data about you that causes you harm? And you know, this is gonna be a little bit of a difficult thing to assess, but maybe it's going to be, um, I have an app that gives you your problem list. You just had a biopsy. Your problem list now has cancer listed at the top and via your app, you're gonna discover your cancer diagnosis. Well, you know, how should we do that? <laughs> Is there something that right. takes account a provider patient relationship and does this in a bit more, you know, appropriate fashion? And so, you know, where or if I were to share data in a way that would cause a patient harm because of some privacy concern, you know, how do I ensure we protect the patient and respect the patient's preferences for privacy? Or if it causes this material security risk, like the app I mentioned from the two guys in the garage in Shenzhen. Or if it's just technically impossible, right? I mean, let's just make up something here. Imagine this requires a robust internet connection and you're in a critical access hospital that doesn't have an internet connection. <laughs> uh, Right, or, or um, you know, there, there are various sorts of things that uh, HHS and uh, ONC have suggested are just very reasonable that I imagine that will be used with discretion by uh, provider organizations as they try to comply with this such that uh, they're given some flexibility of implementing it. Well, let us go to the next slide. I think that's your last one. Yeah, and so, uh, okay, I didn't know if I had the question slide. And so, uh, anyway, let me just summarize by saying, so what I have seen over the last three weeks is amazing private sector stepping up to the plate, companies working together to create novel solutions of everything from IT to supply chain to data analytics. And there is a national coalition that MITRE is currently uh, serving as program manager for, and that is now included about a hundred different companies coming together just to help each other with no specific economic interest. So huge amounts of collaboration, good regulatory waivers on the telemedicine side and the HIPAA side, hopefully soon getting waivers on the virtual hospital, more acute care side, and we'll see what happens with the timing on the ONC and CMS final rules, but they do have exceptions. And certainly I think some of the stuff contained therein is gonna help COVID anyway. So with that, Anthony, you know, let's turn it back to you. I know you're gonna have a discussion with Graham and happy to take any questions. Good, I, I anticipate questions. Yes, we're gonna have about a five minute chat with Graham uh, and then we will 
take questions. So go ahead and send them in and we're going to have plenty of time for them. So uh, Graham, thank you for sponsoring and thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. You want to start off by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hi, Anthony. Hi, everybody. And, uh, and John, thanks again, as usual. Very clear, very uh, nicely uh, communicated state of the state. Um, so, so Anthony, uh, Sicara is a Seattle-based uh, AI scribe company. So we're focused on reducing physician burnout. Um, and our AI, Kara, runs on an iPhone and, and it interprets the natural conversation between the physician and patient in the exam room. And it assembles a high quality billable structured note, as well as helping to pend orders, referrals and follow-ups for physician review and sign-off. So basically the idea is get untethered from the computer, uh, get away from the tyranny of the keyboard, focus on the patient. Um, and so we eliminate all after hours charting day one, as soon as you start using this thing and it'll save up to 70% of your overall documentation time. And that, like I say, frees up time for doctors and caregivers to spend time doing what they uh, got into medicine for, which is to see patients and think about what they need to do rather than just uh, uh, documenting their care. And it, you know, if they want to, what they want to do with that time is up to them. Uh, many of them will see more patients. Some of them just spend the time with their families. Um, and uh, so I'm the president and COO. I'm a physician from the UK by background, uh, but a bit like John, I've spent the last 30 years or so in health information technology in a variety of different roles. Very good, thank you, Graham. Um, you guys are based in Seattle, uh, definitely one of the earliest and hardest hit by COVID-19. Um, what are you hearing out there from your customers, prospects? What are people going through in the trenches uh, anything you want to share for the benefit of our audience today? Yeah, no, no, you're right. We were, I think, sort of the earliest hit, and maybe not now so much the hardest hit, but, you know, we've had over 2,500 cases in Washington State and, and about 135 deaths, unfortunately, and a lot of that is in the downtown uh, metropolitan Seattle and Bellevue area, and... Um, and so, you know, we've probably been experiencing this um, maybe longer than anyone else. We've been, you know, social distancing, working from home, and, uh, you know, we've all non-emergency uh, or, or non-essential businesses now been shut down. Everybody's working from home. I'm here with four other family members uh, working, working <laughs> from home. So, um, yeah, you know, we've seen this unfold, unfold real close and personal. Um, situation continues to evolve obviously here just like everywhere else on a daily basis but the one thing common from our customers is that this is all consuming at the moment it's the planning readiness and execution are all continuing all the time so it's not like you plan once and then you just you know you you then uh, work on that uh, you know everyone is continuing to evolve as this thing evolves and uh, that's from postponement of electric surgeries drive-through testing virtual visits as john said looking at alternative facilities, dedicated triage centers, retrofitting of hospitals, clinic settings, <clears throat> and a big concern, uh, Anthony, remains capacity. ICU beds, clinical staff, PPE. Um, you know, we even had hospitals locally that were getting folks to, to help jump in and sew uh, face masks. Uh, we've had a bunch of uh, folks in the local community manufacturing now jump in uh, locally to, to just help out to develop PPE. And whether it's the effect of social distancing or the closure of non-essential businesses and these stay-at-home mandates, you know, we'll, we'll see if they're having sufficient enough effect to flatten the curve. I think that the expectation is in the next 
two weeks or so, we'll, uh, they're anticipating that we'll get the, the peak of our hospital and ICU utilization. So certainly by mid-April, we'll know whether this is working. Very good. Now, you mentioned physician burnout. That's the topic that we cover regularly in our webinars, a huge issue. Um, it's amazing to think that if, 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 the, if a lot of physicians were on the verge of burnout before this, we can only imagine the effect that this is having. Although, I mean, I don't know, perhaps, you know, in some ways it's invigorating to, to have such a focus and such a challenge as opposed to the the mundane, um, but talk about that, the, the burnout, whether or not you think this is going to um, push things further, and then, you know, a little bit about, you know, how your product uh, aims to alleviate that burnout. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, John touched on a number of this, but we've got um, doctors locally in some of the largest systems, whether it's Providence, St. Joseph, Swedish, Multicare, uh, you know, many, many doctors using care on a daily basis, and they uh, were using it obviously before the crisis and they're relying potentially even more heavily on this as we get into the, the crisis, particularly in primary care, uh, but in some of these dedicated triage clinics. And so more organizations are coming on board in the region as we speak, but also nationally. And we've repeatedly heard that reducing documentation time and effort associated with that during this crisis is a priority in all settings of care. So it, it's because it frees up caregiver time to spend on the patients. And you know, oftentimes they'll be gowned up. They'll they'll be uh, you know having to try and reduce uh, you know the the risk of contamination. And so, voice is a natural way of interacting with uh, an electronic uh, record and to and to uh, you know uh, to interact with with uh, you know your patients. So to that end, uh, last week we announced that you know small as we are, we're making Kara free for COVID visits, and um, so we're working in a as friendly as a manner as we can, but that's both for in-person and virtual visits. And so we're starting to roll out a, what we call a COVID pathway, which is, uh, you know, the AI understands what it's listening for, for URI, you know, for respiratory tract visits, and not just in Seattle, but wherever it's needed. And we'll do that as, for as long as we can just to do our bit. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's a, uh, you know, it's something we're just seeing nationally that, uh, you know, this is helping uh, to allow dogs to focus during the time of COVID. All right, Graham. Well, thank you very much. That's about uh, the time we had for our little interview. So I want to appreciate, again, your sponsorship and, and making this event possible. I really do appreciate it. Uh, now we're going to go back to uh, Dr. Halamka, uh, and we're going to jump in with our questions. So plenty of questions here. This is always uh, the most fun part, right, Dr. Halamka? All Indeed. right, first question. Yes, first question. Any discussion about delaying appropriate use criteria slash CDSM mandatory start date, which is currently scheduled to be mandatory in 2021? And I asked about that yesterday, and as I was highlighting in my comments, that I have not heard any delays. I mean, obviously still being discussed. I, a lot of folks are suggesting that it creates undue burden to have the start dates in the same time frame as proposed. But this is the question, what's the benefit to the patient? And might in fact these things be actually materially important for COVID response in its aftermath? So uh, wish I could give you a concrete answer, but as of yesterday, I've heard no delay. 
Okay, we'll take it. All right, next question. Any progress on standards for SDOH as part of the med record? So I think they're meaning social determinants of health. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously there are groups that continue to work on social determinants of health standards, but uh, at least in my conversations with Chuck Jaffe over the last couple of days, much of the work on standards over the last few weeks has been creating what I'm going to call the minimal COVID data set for exchange. So sort of interesting issues there is, sure, the minimal COVID data set for exchange is going to, by definition, include some social determinants of health, right? Because you're going to need to understand, is somebody homeless? <laughs> That's got implications yeah. or access to care or other things like that. So. I would just tell folks, yes, it's being worked, but in the short term, it'll probably be social determinants of health as applies to COVID as we come up with a minimal COVID standard. All right, next question. Much debate on how to meet ADT requirements and the six month deadline. Are HIEs a possible solution? You know, it's interesting that one of the things that seemed to change in the final rule is discrimination between what is a institution, what is a network, what is an HIE, has kind of all been removed. <laughs> and so uh, I think really the answer there is, is that rather than specifically focusing on one entity to deliver this functionality, the assumption is there are modular components out there, some provided by the EHR vendors, some provided by organizations like Care Equality or Sequoia, and some provided by Commonwealth, and that you assemble these as would be necessary to achieve the result you need. Uh, I have not seen a specific focus on returning to an HIE model to meet these particular needs. Okay, very good. Next question. Lots of concerns expressed about third-party software and lack of security. Recognize that we have heard from federal agencies that it is between the patient and the software vendors. Your thoughts, please. Okay. That, oh, a little, little clarification there. The last question is related to the security of the API and data sharing. Yeah, no, I know. I got that. Yeah. And so here is, we had a lot of controversy about that. And, um, you know, there, there are certain figures in the industry that seem to offer controversial opinions. I actually sat down with a number of figures in the industry and I said, well, what are your real concerns? And in fact, their concern was not about information blocking, intellectual property or competitiveness. It was about this exact issue, which is, so Anthony, have you read your Facebook end user license agreement? Oh, I'm sure you have. It's four point type. It's nine pages long. What was on page eight? Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so to say we are going to now require every patient to read and digest every end user license agreement does seem a bit unrealistic. So what you wonder is, Anthony, you're old enough to remember what a good housekeeping seal is. <laughs> yes. Yes, what, I am. what you wonder is coming out of all this, might there be a service that is offered by a nonprofit or a private company, who knows, where they say, actually, we have read the end user license agreement and this app does protect your data. It doesn't sell it to third parties. It doesn't push it to places you don't want it pushed. Uh, because I, I agree with the, the question 
uh, I, I get it. We want more data liquidity. We want more patient control and data stewardship. But at the same time, we can't expect every single patient to read every single end user license agreement. I hope we would offer them some relief. All right, very good. Next question. Will the DRGs account for the fact that overhead is less in a home than in a hospital? Isn't the shift to the hospital in the home supposed to help flatten the cost curve? And of course, from the hospital to the home. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's too early to know. Uh, I mean, so uh, I get it, right? That is, in theory, when you've looked at the work that's been done by Medically Home, Contessa, and others, that there is the belief that you could potentially reduce your hospitalization costs 25%. And so, you know, maybe the answer, again, you know, we'll see uh, hopefully in the next couple of days, the DRG might create a number which is still viable, <laughs> right? It doesn't go from 20,000 to zero, <laughs> but, but it will go 20,000 to 13,000 or something, you know, so that it recognizes the cost of delivery is less, but it still is significant because you're going to need all that telemetry. You're going to need the virtual visits. You're going to need the home care staffing. You're going to need the paramedics and EMTs on supply chain. So there's still substantial costs. So a fair point should be somewhat less but certainly can't be a whole lot less. All right, very good. Next question. Does the final rule prevent others from monetizing my PHI without my consent? Uh, well, okay. So, so here is where this gets a little bit complicated, right? The idea of this API is that it is going from the covered entity to you. And once it is deposited on your device, it is under your control. Now, what if you um, volitionally go to an app store, download an app that monetizes the data that is on your device, and you give it full permission to access all that data because you didn't understand the end user license agreement? <laughs> right? So, so that's the risk, right? So there is no notion of some company getting access to your data without you. The worry would be you giving access without understanding how the data is going to be monetized. All right, very good. Uh, Graham, I wanna bring you back in here. Uh, wondering if you have a question for Dr. Holomka. Yeah, John, uh, do you, reading between the lines here, do you see any, certainly the idea of sort of pulling in the, um, you know, request for fire APIs. One of the things obviously that we try and do is we're interested in not only pulling data to help the context of a note, uh, but also to push data back. And right. the things that isn't very granular at the moment is that ability to push data back into an EHR in a way that maybe is, is a pending state. Is there anything that you see in the ruling that unblocks the need for EHRs to accept inbound data at a granular level? Yeah, so, so he asks a complicated question. So, because here's one of the problems, that referential integrity of the data in an EHR requires a certain schema, requires certain error checking on parameters and values, right? So the, the, the challenge with a write back is in effect, you have to replicate the entire business logic of the EHR in the API that is accepting the data for write back. 
So where am I seeing this actually being done, right? Obviously, we've got such things as HL7V2ORU, right, where you can send a result in. Or um, OBR, OB, you know, you've got the, I can send a dictation response in because there's a dictation interface. So, yeah, at the moment, a lot of this data input is V2. I have also seen proprietary APIs for which the EHR vendors have made APIs available for novel workflow. Like, for example, Graham, maybe you wanted to send a message into the inbox of the provider. Well, there is an EHR-based API that allows you to write to the inbox of the provider. It's just not Firebase. <laughs> so there is no requirement in the rule for write-back. Uh, everyone's working on the notion of write-back. We all think it's important. It just, it's a lot of technical challenge that we still have to work through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. H, any final thoughts? Well, I would just say, as you look at your inbox over the course of the next few days, you will be asked to help. And, you know, again, I, my wife is sewing masks. I'm being pulled into ventilator procurement and blood sample collection, uh, convalescent plasma clinical trials. You'll never know what your inbox will contain on a daily basis. And so this is an opportunity for leadership. You know, the neck, this particular next 16 weeks will try us. As I said, our anxiety and depression will go up, but you can really make a difference. So look at that inbox. Even if it's out of your comfort zone, pitch in because about working together, we can overcome this. All right. Let me go to uh, Graham. Uh, and I just want to remind, uh, mention to people that there is a uh, section of the slide deck today that has a uh, sort of an overview presentation about uh, Sekara. So I just want to mention that that's in there. So Graham, your uh, final thoughts. Yeah, I, I, actually one of the things that we're seeing it here, right, which is that um, virtual meetings, virtual visits and virtual encounters uh, work real well and we're all getting used to them and um, I think that that's one of the things that we're seeing that's here to stay in. And it's also why we're at the moment about to release a plugin into Zoom because, uh, you know, there is a HIPAA compliant version of Zoom. And we think that uh, it's going to far outlast COVID is that the, the effects of virtual visits and virtual visits being part of life is where we're going to all be. So um, we, we anticipate plugging into that and then plugging into more and more and more of those virtual visit technologies because that's just the way that business will be and we care will be delivered. Well, excellent. That's about uh, all we had time for today. Again, incredible stuff from Dr. Halamka and Dr. Hughes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Regarding continuing education, uh, you can use this final uh, slide in this deck for your CEU needs. You'll get an email as soon as the on-demand recording of this event is up. If you want to sponsor one of our upcoming events or book your own custom event, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for our upcoming webinars. So with that, I want to again thank Dr. John Halamka, Dr. Graham Hughes, Sekara for sponsoring. And I want to thank everybody for attending today, taking time out when I know you have a lot going on. So with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.